ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of January. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. North Queenslanders are anxiously watching the path of a potential new cyclone that's predicted to cross the coast between Cardwell and Airlie Beach overnight on Thursday as a Category 3 system. It's worrying farmers who are yet to recover from Cyclone Jasper in December. But as any guest reports, cyclone researchers are busily gearing up to monitor and learn from the storm. North Queensland banana grower Leon Collins is worried about the forecast. Well, if this cyclone coming in turned our way, being a Category 3 at the moment, it's got the potential to take out every plant you have on your plantation if you get a direct hit. That just must be so worrying. How, how's your sleep? You don't sleep at all sometimes. <laughs> but um, you know what? We've been there before. Um, banana growers are very resilient people. They just get on and get to the work at hand. At his farm near Tully, between Cairns and Townsville, he's still trying to fix the damage from Cyclone Jasper last month. We're getting all our roads back together, you know, the infrastructure on our um, hauling roads and our main access roads to the farm have been absolutely terrible and um, we'll be cleaning up for the next six months from this. You know, we've got fencing damage everywhere and there's kilometres of it. In the past, big cyclones, including Winifred, Larry and Debbie, have devastated banana supplies. But Leon Collins, who's also the chairman of the Australian Banana Growers Council, is more optimistic about this one. You know, most of the bananas, 94% of Australia's bananas, are growing in this area in the North Queensland. The way this cyclone is now, even if one area got a direct hit, things look would still be OK in another growing area. But we've just got to wait and see. While farmers prepare by harvesting what produce they can, engineer David Henderson is making different preparations. Dr Henderson runs the Cyclone Testing Station at James Cook University and he and his staff are readying equipment known as anemometers to measure the wind. We race out, we set these things up uh, in front of the cyclone, we run away, we let the instrumentation do the recording for us. They get permissions from the local councils to have in parks. So they're trying to understand the really complex wind environment that's impacting our houses because we're measuring the wind speed at the height of a single-storey house in amongst houses. Dr Henderson's team then analyses the wind speed for the difference in gusts or turbulence. And it's the high gusts that do a lot of the damage to our buildings. You know, they're the ones that give us the, the high suctions that may be on our roof trying to peel up parts of the roof cladding and things. So getting a better measure of these types of, of complex natures within the wind speed will hopefully give us a much better idea of how to design products to resist it. And with more extremes in weather expected in future, such designs will be in demand. But for now, the residents of North Queensland are bracing for this latest cyclone and the heavy rain and flooding it could bring. Annie Guest reporting. Much of the rest of the country is sweltering through a heatwave with temperatures well into the 40s. It's affecting large parts of Western Australia, New South Wales, Queensland, the Northern Territory and South Australia. And as Nick Grimm reports, it's prompting conversations about how to make sure we can adjust to high temperatures in the future. Close to the South Australian border and on the edge of the Simpson Desert, the Queensland town of Birdsville is no stranger to hot summers, 
but this year is a little different. Yeah, yeah. I think we probably had more days over 40 than under it this summer for sure. And we have had some of the particularly particularly hot days, which are your sort of 46s, you know, pushing up closer to 47. I don't think we've hit 47 yet, but today might be the day. Jenna Brook operates the Birdsville Post Office and has lived in the outback town all her life. You can't really have a cold shower in Birdsville for about two or three months of the year. You know, our cold water runs warm and our hot water, we actually usually turn that off and use that reservoir for cold water. But even that, it still warms. And how does Birdsville, by and large, acclimatise itself to those sort of high temperatures? How, how do you cope with it? Oh, look, I think we're pretty lucky comparing to 20 or 30 years ago out here. You know, our, our houses have obviously got very good air conditioning. Our businesses are air conditioned. We do sort of the outside jobs early in the morning, in the aircon during the day and down at the billabong in the afternoon cooling off. You want to wear, think like Birdsville, you want to wear long sleeves and big hats and just avoid the sun as much as you possibly can. Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer from Griffith Law School is a founder of the Climate Justice Observatory, which aims to help ensure we're all better prepared for rising global temperatures. She wants governments to do more to implement so-called cool havens, where those without air conditioning can seek refuge from the heat. She also wants changes to the way we think about extreme heat as well. Every time there's a heat wave, we have all these pictures coming at us of people frolicking in the surf. Is terrible practice to encourage people to go into the sun. Even if it's to the water, they should stay in the shade and they should stay out of the sun completely. So they need to change some of those media messages. Don't go frolic in the in the surf. <laughs> stay out of the sun. You can still get heat stroke even if you're at the beach or somewhere like that. And we just have to get better prepared. We have to get really prepared. So I feel like if you're in a pub trivia quiz with all your mates and someone said, you know, what disaster is most likely to kill you, I just don't think any Australian would say, oh, it'd be a heat wave. You know, that's the thing that's the the worst. That's the thing I'm most worried about. I don't think any of us would say that, but that is the truth. It's a message that's already sunk in for Birdsville locals, including Jenna Brook. Don't go outside if you can avoid it. (laughs) It's a good way to, to start. But look, we are very lucky. We've got a beautiful billabong, a big lagoon on the edge of town. It's a really lovely way to spend the evening, sunset, have some sundowners. So we are very, very lucky to have that. Anywhere that you can kind of, you know get your body wet is a, is a good start to mitigating the heat. Birdsville resident Jenna Brook, Nick Grimm with that report. In the United States, Donald Trump is closing in on the Republican presidential nomination with just one major challenger standing in his way. Voters in the state of New Hampshire will tomorrow cast their votes to decide whether to back the former president or whether to give his rival, Nikki Haley, the chance of an upset win to reset the race. Here's North America correspondent Carrington Clark. There's now just one woman standing between Donald Trump and the Republican nomination for president, and Nikki Haley is trying hard to convince her party to ditch the former leader. This is what we're, we're down to. It is now a two-person race. And what that means is, your decision tomorrow is, do we want more of the same or do we want a new generational leader? New Hampshire is a small state in the northeast corner of the US, but it holds an outsized role in selecting the presidential candidates for the parties. Ms Haley and Mr Trump have crisscrossed the snow-covered state with competing rallies. Trump supporters were excited by yesterday's departure of Ron DeSantis from the race and his endorsement of their preferred candidate. I think it makes a huge difference. Um, I think Nikki Haley needs to pull out and we all stand united behind one 
candidate, which would be Donald J. Trump. But here, it's not just Republicans who get to decide the candidate. An unusual characteristic of New Hampshire primaries is that so-called undeclared voters can vote in either the Democratic or Republican races. George Bruno is about as establishment New Hampshire Democrat as you get. A former long-serving chairman of the party in the state, he switched his registration to undeclared, which means he can now vote in the Republican primary for the first time in his life. The idea is uh, to vote for anybody but Trump, to try to reduce Trump, Trump's margin in the primary, uh, to make him uh, a little uh, weaker. Dr Andrew Smith is a political scientist from the University of New Hampshire. He's doubtful that Democrats voting in the Republican race will be a major factor in turning the contest in Nikki Haley's favour. There have been organised efforts uh, to encourage Democrats to go over into the Republican primary and vote for Haley or somebody not Trump. But that's hard to do. It's hard enough to get people to come out and vote in their own party's primary than to get them to come out and vote in the opposite party's primary. The Democratic race is unusual because although people are voting, the National Party hasn't sanctioned the result because of a disagreement over timing. With no truly competitive opponent in his party, it seems clear President Joe Biden will be the Democrat nominee for the general election in November. And it's looking increasingly likely his opponent will once again be Donald J. Trump unless Nikki Haley can derail his ascent. This is Carrington Clark in Manchester, New Hampshire, reporting for AM. To discuss the Republican presidential nomination race a little further, I was joined earlier by Bruce Walping. He's a senior fellow at the US Studies Centre at Sydney University, and he's worked with the Democrats in the US Congress. Bruce Walpe, does Donald Trump have the Republican presidential nomination in the bag, or does Nikki Haley have any serious chance of making it harder for him? He has it in the bag, regardless of whether Nikki Haley uh, scores the upset of the century uh, against Donald Trump in New Hampshire tomorrow. He will be able to claim the nomination after tomorrow. In all the future contests, uh, Trump leads by 20, 30, 40 points. There is nowhere for Nikki Haley to go. There's no way for her to win the nomination. Trump will enjoy the beginning of his coronation as the Republican presidential nominee. Will all Republicans then fall in behind Donald Trump or what do you expect will happen now? He has uh, the support of 60 percent of the Republican Party. Uh, they they believe that Joe Biden is the illegitimate president. They believe that the election was stolen. They believe that Donald Trump is being politically persecuted in these uh, legal processes, the indictments that are against him. They never left Trump. The election was never over. They believed he won. And Trump still commands an overwhelming hold on the Republican Party from the highest echelons in Congress uh, to the grassroots across the country in the prairies and on both coasts. So if this is shaping up to be a rematch between Donald Trump and President Joe Biden, can President Biden once again defy expectations and win? Or does he have political baggage now that makes it even harder? He, he doesn't have so much baggage, but he has really strong headwinds. And most of them have to do with age and the belief, if you polling Americans, Americans believe they don't want a, a Trump-Biden contest, but particularly because with Joe Biden that he's too old and they are unsure that he can complete the term and serve effectively. And so what Biden's problem is that Democratic constituencies may stay home and not vote because there's no enthusiasm for him. Trump's constituencies, they're amped up to the gills. They are out there uh, pounding away every day. 
So if Biden loses the youth vote, if Biden loses uh, the Arab American vote in key states like Michigan <clears throat> because of the war in Gaza, any diminishment in turnout for Biden it makes the election much closer, given how close 2020 was, where 40,000 votes in three states could have decided the outcome for Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has been twice impeached. He's facing four criminal cases. Are all these challenges bolstering his chances of winning the November election? He has been able to convince his base, and again, which is just strong and amped up and out there, that when they... that. What he's facing is a political persecution designed to drive him from the ballot, make him ineligible to run, and that he calls this the greatest case of political interference in American history. And he has, in fact, weaponized uh, the political indictments against him. And that was a brilliant, cunning move on his part to make sure that there was no embarrassment to him uh, with uh, Republican voters because of what was happening legally and in the courts. Is the Middle East conflict and his challenging of his Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu having any impact on Mr Biden? It is having an impact with uh, Democratic constituencies. There is a, a strong concern in the Democratic Party about the war in Gaza, the, the catastrophic conditions that people are seeing, what's happening to the Palestinian people. And even though there's uh, immense shared value with Israel and the attack that occurred on October 7th and Israel's right to exist and defend itself, Notwithstanding that, there are a lot of uh, Democrats and particularly Arab American voters who have voted Democratic saying that enough is enough and they find it hard to stay with Joe Biden going into the election. So this will be a factor. This could be a factor in November in several key states. How does President Biden win then? President Biden wins. Ultimately, it's it's down to the two men uh, competing against each other. And uh, Trump has Trump has never cracked 50 percent approval. He has never become a majority president. He is the divider in chief. And if you don't have a majority, you have to kind of eke through the uh, electoral college in order to win. Biden believes that the economy is turning up. Interest rates are beginning to recede. Mortgage rates are down. Cost of living pressures are easing. That will give uh, President Biden a lift. But when he goes and Biden will campaign against Trump's extremism, Trump, of course, will campaign against Biden for everything that he's been saying. Uh, crooked Joe Biden and that he's uh, inflation and crime and immigration and the border. But Biden believes that his base is intact and actually it, that the country does not want and cannot tolerate another term by Donald Trump and his assault on American democracy. Australian politicians are very careful to avoid weighing in on the US presidential campaign. Behind the scenes, what do you think will be happening now? I think there's great concern uh, in Australia, in Canberra, and among officials here, and also around the world. The, what's, the importance of New Hampshire is it's now very real. Trump is going to be the nominee. It is perfectly contestable for November. No one knows the complete outcome. And what happens if he does become president again? They know his agenda. It is America first. It is to destroy the architecture erected after the end of World War II for peace, security, and stability. He is, um, in some senses, unpredictable. Uh, he, on the wars in Ukraine and the wars in the Middle East, what's he going to do? What's he going to do on China? But what's he going to do to Democratic allies around the world? He attacked them when he was president before. Is he going to attack them again? So there's great uncertainty. And uh, I think uh, world leaders and people uh, across the world are terribly concerned about what a second Trump term means for our future collectively. Bruce Wolpe. 
thank you for talking to AM. Thank you, Sarah. Bruce Wolpe is a senior fellow at the US Studies Centre at Sydney University. More details are emerging about the federal government's promised inquiry into how the criminal justice system deals with sexual assault allegations. Two part-time commissioners have been appointed to lead the inquiry by the Australian Law Reform Commission, which will report back by this time next year. Here's political reporter Monty Boville. The federal government says the inquiry will not only look at strengthening sexual assault laws, but improving the outcomes and experiences for victims and survivors. Angela Lynch is from the Queensland Sexual Assault Network. Victim survivors would say the process of uh, the court trial and the cross-examination was, um, you know, some report that it was worse than the crime itself being committed against them. So when you are talking about at that level that the process itself is more traumatic than the actual crime, um, you know, you've got huge problems and we need to be looking at this because the impact on victim survivors of sexual violence is so profound, has so many impacts on so many domains in their life. With one in five women over the age of 15 experiencing sexual violence, the inquiry will review laws about consent and evidence, along with court procedures and jury directions, as well as training for judges, police and lawyers. Clearly, our criminal justice system response although really important, is not the entire answer. And we have to look at other ways um, that victim survivors are going to be getting, um, you know, justice, safety and accountability uh, from our systems. So we really hope um, that the Australian Law Reform Commission takes a broad approach to this and looks at a variety of ways where that can be achieved. It will also examine alternatives to criminal prosecutions, including restorative justice, civil claims, compensation schemes and specialist courts. The Federal Attorney-General is Mark Dreyfus. Prosecution rates are low, conviction rates are even lower. Many find the process traumatising and we want the Australian Law Reform Commission to look at a whole range of aspects of the justice system to make sure that It is simpler and more accessible. He's appointed two part-time commissioners to lead the inquiry. Marcia Neath, who recently headed the inquiry into the Tasmanian government's responses to child sexual abuse, and South Australian District Court Judge Liesl Kadelka. They're going to be talking uh, extensively to victim survivors. They will be assisted by an expert panel of victim survivors, people with lived experience of sexual violence, to make sure that this is a really effective inquiry that produces recommendations on which uh, both national and state governments can act. The inquiry is part of the federal government's broader plan to end family, domestic and sexual violence. The Law Reform Commission has been asked to deliver its final report by January next year. That report from Monty Boville. And if you're in an abusive situation or you know someone who is, you can call 1800 RESPECT. That's 1800 737 732. If it's an emergency, call 000. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.